grandfather passed away last Friday, a week ago Friday, and we had his funeral this week in Florida and was able to um, make a quick trip out there. And I know that you were, most of you were aware of that and were praying, and so we appreciate those prayers. And uh, just glad to be back. It was a, a fast week, and so I'm glad to be in the Lord's house amongst our church family members, and thank you so much. As we deal with the church, um, there's often, as we go through it, we get to deal with some of, of the more difficult things. And this morning is one of those mornings that we get to deal with some of the more difficult things in relation to the church. Um, the church is sometimes uh, perhaps um, half-baked, if you will. Uh, we deal with part of the truths of God's word in regards to the church, but we leave out some of the more difficult things that, that the Lord brings to our attention in his word, um, some, some significant things, some important things that are brought to bear so that we be a place that is uh, appropriate. We be a, a place that is, is walking with him, that is representing him effectively and properly, and that we be a people that are, are doing that. And so this morning is one of those mornings that we get to deal in 1 Corinthians 5 with uh, what I've entitled the message, Loving Discipline in the Church. And um, it, it is loving discipline. And we go from last week dealing with, we dealt with the fact that the church is built on the new covenant. And the new covenant is a covenant of grace, which means it's a free gift from God. It's a covenant of transformation, uh, which means God changes us. He doesn't leave us where we're at, but he, um, he gives us his Holy Spirit who comes to live within us, and he makes us a new creation, a new creature. We're no longer who we were, but now we're made new. And then it's a covenant of mercy, and the scripture says that he no longer remembers our sins. And, and the idea of it is, is that he doesn't hold our sins against us. And we talked last week about the fact that while these truths are, are real, that in addition to these truths being real about us, they should also motivate how we live towards each other. We should treat each other with mercy. We should treat each other with uh, a discipleship or helping each other to change into the image of Christ. And we should treat each other with mercy or, or not holding, um, our sin, holding sins against each other, uh, not holding bitterness or holding things, um, holding things against people. This week, we're going to deal with the other side of the spectrum, which is church discipline. The church is to be a place of holiness. It's to be a place of separation. It's to be a place of distinction. And we want to remember this. The church is not the building here. This building is not to be a holy building. You know, we don't, we don't keep it clean so that it will be a holy building. It's the individuals that sit here every Sunday that, that the Lord calls to be holy people, to be separated, to be, to be different from the world. And when the world is looking for some hope, when the, Lord, when the world is looking for something different, when the world is looking for, for the possibility of deliverance from the things that they're um, bound by, the church should be the place that they should be able to find those things. The church should be the place where they should be able to find those people. And so um, the Apostle Paul writes this entire chapter about the idea of, of church discipline. And, and, and how it looks and how it should function and how it should be played out so that, so that God's church can be separated and, and holy and that um, the people that are within the church can be guarded and protected. So if you want to keep your fingers in 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, you can, but I'd like to ask you to turn over to Hebrews chapter number 12 as well. I want us to understand, first of all, I, I really, I, I pray over messages like this because I really want to come across gracious. Um, these are one of the, these are the more difficult messages to preach with grace, but, but grace, is, grace is infused in these messages. There's an extraordinary amount of grace in um, the preaching of discipline. And we look at discipline, even when it comes to our children, we look at discipline as a negative thing, but discipline is not a negative thing. Discipline is a very positive thing. Uh, the root word for discipline is disciple. Uh, we're making disciples. And the, the idea of discipleship is, is that we're drawing somebody close to ourselves so that we can tutor them. The, the word literally means to, to tutor or to train someone. 
So when we think of discipline, we think of the fact that we're, we're tutoring somebody, we're, we're training somebody in the ways of the Lord. And when we think of discipline in, in the 21st century, we think of it from the perspective of punishment or anger or wrath. God's angry with me or God's upset with me and so he's going to punish me now and that's what we consider to be discipline. That, that's not discipline. Uh, discipline is when we disciple somebody and when we work with them to help them grow and mature. And this is the type of discipline that the Lord talks about. In Hebrews chapter number 12, it tells us a few things about this discipline. Number one, it says that it's not pleasant. <laughs> So I remember when I was a kid and I got disciplined, it wasn't pleasant at all, okay? My dad was an expert, okay? He had a master's and a doctorate degree in discipline. He, he was an expert at discipline. And, and when he did it, I didn't walk away with a smile on my face or joy in my heart. I was, I was sorry for what I had done, right? So it's not meant, and Hebrews 12 tells us this, it's not meant to be pleasant, it's not meant to be painless, okay? It's meant to hurt a little bit. It's meant to cause us to remember the pain associated with the, with, the, with the act that we have done. And it's meant to, the Bible says, to produce fruits of righteousness. It's meant to change us into the image of Christ a little bit and to produce fruits of righteousness. The main reason why I want you to look in Hebrews chapter number 12 is I want us to see the fact that discipline is an act of God's love. It's not an act of God's punishment. God, God cannot and will not ever punish his children. I was, I was talking to my brother this week at, at my grandpa's funeral. We were talking about this idea of church discipline, and, and his comment was Jesus, Christ was, the, Jesus Christ was the one who took all of God's wrath for us. And so his anger can never be against his people because Jesus Christ satisfied God's anger towards us. It doesn't mean that God doesn't disciple us. It doesn't mean that God doesn't discipline us when we do wrong, but it's not an act of anger. It's not from the heart of wrath or, or disappointment. When God works with us, he works with us to disciple us into the image of Christ. He has promised us in Romans 8 that everyone who is in Christ will be uh, conformed into his image, will be changed into his likeness. And that process, if you look at Hebrews 2, the Bible says that Jesus Christ was, was, um, Jesus Christ was brought to maturity through suffering, so we also will be brought to, brought to maturity through suffering. He says here in Hebrews chapter number 12, in verse number 5, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as addresses you as sons. My sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves, and he chastens every son whom he receives. The Bible also concludes in this passage here in, in Hebrews chapter number 12 that there are those people in the world today who are very religious, but they're not sons. The, the text uses the word illegitimate. And they're not truly children of God, and so they go through life and they don't ever face any discipline. And the emphasis of the, of the passage there in Hebrews 12 is that those who are truly children of God are, are going to face discipline. They're going to face chastening. And I've seen this a number of times in my own personal life. I've seen, I've seen uh, people who are, are Christians who, who are struggling all the time and they're, they're, living, uh, um, un, they're living ungodly lives. They're not walking with the Lord as they ought and they know it and there's this constant chastening. And they ask me, uh, John, do you, do you think I'm saved? Do you think I'm, what, what do you think? And I always tell them, I was like, the, the, one, the one affirmation that I have that somebody who is not doing what they ought to do it's possible that they are truly a believer is that they're constantly being disciplined by the Lord. The, per, the people that I fear for the most are people who are not walking with the Lord as they ought and there is no discipline from the Lord. There is no chastening. There is no, uh, there is no sorrow. There is no mourning. There, there's just this, there's this forward motion in sin that there's no hindrance to it at all. Those are the people that I fear for the most. But those of us, we, we all struggle with sin. But we could all say that when we do sin as children of God, we face, his, we face conviction, don't we? 
We, we know that what we have done is wrong and we ought not to have done it. We, where does that come from? Well, the Bible teaches us that that comes from the Lord. It's something that he has put with, within us. It is really a wonderful affirmation that we are children of God. Those are not the ones that we are to be concerned about. It's those who, don't, who do not face any discipline or chastening from the Lord, and they just continue to go through life um, unhindered in their sin, and they have no sorrow for it. We must remember that the church is a place, the body of believers that come together on Sunday, each one of us is, is a place where, where we are to be a representation of Christ and we are to be a reflection of him. And the Lord takes this very seriously. It's not a light thing in scripture that, that the church be a holy, separated place. It doesn't mean that a church be a, a perfect place, all right? If the church had to be a perfect place, then how many of us would be here? Okay, would be none of us here. No one would be here because there is no such thing as a perfect individual other than Jesus Christ. But the church is to be, filled with, to be full of people that are repentant. It is to be filled with people who know and acknowledge their sins and their failures and their faults and they're honest about them and they're real with them and they're striving to overcome them on a daily basis and they, and they find church as this healthy place where they can be transparent and real and where they can find the help that they need to be victorious. That's really why we're all here this morning is every one of us has a struggle that we're dealing with that we need each other to help us be victorious in that struggle. We need church to help us walk through the difficulties and trials and tribulations of life. We need the church. We, we need each other. Some of us have forgotten what Acts 20, 28 says, and that is the fact that the church the, the people of God are a people that have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. That they're very precious to him. They're very, they're very important to him in, 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 in many ways like your own children, but, but more so. He sees his people as being very significant, enough to put elders over the church and to say, you are overseers over the church, and you are not overseers just over this building, but you're overseers of those whom Jesus Christ has purchased with his own blood. He tells us in Ephesians 5 that the purpose of the church is to sanctify and to cleanse the people, to, to wash them by the word of God so that they might be presented one day to Jesus Christ. They might be presented in such a way that they are without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that they might be holy and without blemish. This is what we're to be moving towards. This is why we're here. We're being conformed into the image of Christ. We're working towards the ultimate goal of Christ-likeness. And each one of us is, is, is participating in this journey right? We're on a journey of faith, aren't we? We're all, and, and, and a lot of us are at different stages of that journey. But you know what's unique about the journey of faith that we're on? We're not on it alone. We're not on it alone. Everybody that's in this building this morning, everybody that's sitting across from you, it's on the same journey. And they're at different levels of that journey, and they can help us as we go on this journey. And ultimately, one day, we'll, we will, as we pass from this life, we will be introduced into the kingdom of the Lord, and we will then be completely in his image. But never mistake the glory that we will receive when we die as being a substitute for the sanctification that we experience while we are here. The Bible is clear in 1 John chapter number 3 that all of those who have hope of one day being conformed into the image of God through glorification will be going through the process of sanctification in this life. I've often said it this way. The only visible proof that you and I have that we are truly Christians is not justification, it's not glorification. The only visible proof uh, evidence that we have that we will one day be in the likeness of Christ is sanctification. 
It is what God is doing in our lives today. It is the victories that we are experiencing through and in Jesus Christ. It's when we see Jesus Christ being lived through us and we think to ourselves, how is that possible? And we conclude that it's only possible because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Listen to me, folks. That is the only evidence that we have that one day we will stand in his presence and be accepted by him. It's the only evidence. It's the only tangible thing that we have, the only tangible hope that we have of being accepted by him is the victories that we experience in this life now through and in Jesus Christ our Lord. The church is here to help that take place. The church is here to help that process. In 1 Corinthians chapter number five, you have a man who's living in immorality. He's living in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a sin, in a gross sin. And it's very similar. I, I compare this passage of scripture to, um, to Joshua chapter number seven. When the, the children of Israel enter into the promised land, they come to Jericho, they, they defeat Jericho. And there's a man named Achan who steals some of the, some of the um, bounty from Jericho and he hides it in the ground. And they go to their next place, Ai, and they begin to fight this very small place, very insignificant Ai, after just defeating Jericho, and they go in and they get defeated several times. And, and Joshua wants to know, why are we being defeated all of these times? And the Lord tells Joshua, Joshua gets on his knees and he begins to pray before the Lord. He's like, Lord, why are we losing, right? We just defeated Jericho, why are we losing at this insignificant place? And the Lord says to Joshua, there's sin in your camp, he says, get off, this is what the Lord says to him, stop praying, get off of your knees and go and find the sin in your camp and deal with it and then come back to me and we can deal with how we can win. And the same, same scenario takes place in the New Testament in the church where a man is living in sin and the church has embraced that man, has embraced that sin and the Lord says, this has to be dealt with before you can move further, before we can move on. And that's what this idea of discipline in the church is. It's a, it's a loving act. It's an act of compassion. It's, it's an, an act of, of um, protection and provision. And, and to set the church apart in such a way that it properly represents the Lord. So I want to give you some thoughts from 1 Corinthians 5. We already read the text. But I want to give you some thoughts from the, from the text of Scripture to help us with this. Okay? This is not a. This is not a. Um, this is not a pastor's favorite sermon to preach. This is not a very um, encouraging. Uh, I mean, in, in so many ways, a, a message like this is not preached in many churches today. And that's not to exalt our church or to exalt us, but it's to say that we have to preach the whole counsel of God. Even when it comes to negative things, we have to lay it out so that people can see what God expects. We can see where God is at in, on these issues, and, and we can move forward. We, we want to be a church not that, is, not that is packed full of a thousand people, but we want to be a church that is packed full of the people that God has for us here and that are moving in the direction that he want us to, wants us to go and he's gonna, he, he has given us his word to help guide us along on that journey. So number one, the first thing that I have is a prerequisite to loving church discipline. Prerequisites to loving church discipline. The first prerequisite to loving church discipline is, is understanding. Again, the idea of discipline is, is, is a coming alongside of uh, uh, somebody. It, it's not the idea, again, of punishment, but it's the idea of coming alongside of somebody and walking with them through a difficulty, walking with them through a, the challenges of life, walking the, with them through these types of things. It's a tutor or an educator or a trainer. It's discipling somebody. We, we have to be, have an understanding heart towards them. Warren Wearsby once said it this way, church discipline is not a group of pious policemen out to catch a criminal. Rather, it is a group of broken-hearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. It, it, is a, it is a group of people within the church body that love and care for an individual that has, that has fallen away, that has walked away from God. And it's almost like the, the sheep where there's 90 and 9 sheep that stay in the fold, but one sheep goes away. And, and, the, and the shepherds don't leave that sheep to go away and just say, well, you know, forget them. 
The shepherd pursues that sheep lovingly and with compassion and with a broken heart for that sheep. And not all sheep make it back and not all sheep come back, but those, the shepherds or, or even the fold. If you think about Matthew 18, it talks about you know, going to somebody one-on-one if they sinned against you and then taking a brother in the Lord with them. And the reason why we go to them one-on-one is so, to protect them. We're not trying to destroy them. We're just trying to work out what they're struggling with, with them. And we really go to them and say, hey, I'm I'm a partner. I want a companion or partner with you to help you get through this. I want to disciple you through this. And then if they reject that discipleship, we take two with them. And then we present it to the what? And we present it to the body, to the church. And each one of us have a responsibility in bringing that brother back into the church. There has to be an understanding heart, a a heart that recognizes what has happened. Number two, there has to be compassion and love. You'll notice in the text he talks about this this church is is proud of this situation. They they have literally, if you you take the the text um, within the context of what's being said, what Paul is saying literally is they they are proud of of their liberal stance. It's like we have all types of people in our church. We have people that are living in this sin and people that are living in this sin. And, and this man has just taken his, his stepmother for his wife. And there was an arrogance about their, liber, their being liberal in their acceptance of sin. And here's what the Lord says to them with that, with that mindset of this, again, this um, of inclusive, this inclusive nature, the Lord says to them, that should not be your heart. You should not be proud or arrogant of your liberalness, but you should be brokenhearted for that individual. He doesn't say that you should not be proud and arrogant for your being inclusive, nor does he say you should be judgmental of that individual. What he does say is this, you should be brokenhearted for them. He says our hearts should mourn for those who are not walking with the Lord. A brother in Christ who has walked away needs someone to come along beside him and help him be restored in Christ. And sometimes it's painful, but it's often less painful when we have someone with us. Again, Hebrews 12 and verse six, we read it earlier. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. Every son is going to experience chastening from the Lord, a compassionate chastening, a loving chastening, a patient chastening. When we think about the chastening of the Lord in our lives, we see all of those things present, don't we? The Lord is very patient with us. He's long-suffering towards us, isn't he? He's long-suffering. He's always patient with us. Even in our deepest and darkest struggles, the Lord is patient with us. How many of us have come out of things that the Lord was patient with us for years and years and years, and and he's working with us and slowly and and maturing us and and patient and, and working and maturing and patient through all of those things? That's how the Lord works, and that's also how we should work. This is no minor sin. This is no insignificant sin that's being dealt with here. It has risen to a level. And imagine how much patience has been shown towards this individual before it ever gets to this point. Ephesians 4 and verse 15, the Bible says, speak the truth in love so that we might grow up in every way into him who is the head, even into Christ. So we have to be understanding if we're going to be disciplined in love. We have to have compassion. And then thirdly, we have to be self-evaluating. We have to be self-evaluating. We have to make sure that we're looking at ourselves to see our own brokenness, our own failures, and our own faults. The, the, one of the greatest tools that we have in discipling other people, in being patient with other people, in working with other people, is to know the patience and the, and the, and the discipleship that we have received. It is, it is Matthew uh, 7 where he talks about making sure that you have taken the beam out of your own eye. And the idea of it is, is to recognize that the first thing that must be present before you're ever able to disciple anybody else is to realize that you have a beam, right? We want to know people are so open and so willing to receive help from somebody who is broken 
and broken. It's like, it's, it, it's almost in so many ways like 1 Corinthians 13 where it talks about that the, uh, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am like a, a, a clanging cymbal, right? If I haven't come to see my brokenness, I will never be able to help anybody else in their brokenness. Here's how Paul dealt with it. When Paul went to speak to people, he never talked about how fixed he was. Did he? He never talked about how good he was. When Paul went to talk to people and help them and disciple them, he says, I will glory in my infirmities. I will glory in my failures. I will glory in my weaknesses. When he tells his, when he tells his testimony, he always tells about how, how far he was away from God, how he persecuted the church of God. Paul always belittles himself so that Christ might be highly exalted. That's where discipleship begins. When we realize where we are and where we have come and where we are going, we can then come alongside of somebody else who's on the same journey and we work with them and we help them. Discipleship only starts when we have a humble enough spirit to evaluate ourselves and realize that we're no better than the person that we're discipling. Amen? We're on a journey with them. So those are some things, if we're going to prerequisites, if we're going to have true, loving church discipline, those are some prerequisites that must be there. Number two, persons accountable for church discipline. The scriptures tell us a few things about people who are, who are pos- where it's possible for them to be under church discipline. The Bible says that these people must refer to themselves as brothers, He even says in the text that this is not meant for us to separate ourselves from the people who are of the world who are struggling with these things. But he says, but those who call themselves brothers, in other words, those who refer to themselves as followers of Jesus Christ, they have now put a a stamp on themselves, right? They put a name, they've, they've called themselves representatives of Christ. And now everything that they do falls underneath that category, And that's why it's so important that we understand that those who call themselves Christians, those who call themselves representatives of Christ, have to be held to a standard that is a reflection of that. And when they are calling themselves Christians, that they are bringing shame to the name of Jesus or bringing shame to his church, they must be treated in a disciplinary way. Remember this, disciplining somebody who has walked away from the Lord who has shamed the name of Christ, is a healthy thing to do. It's not only healthy for the one who has walked away and shamed the name of Christ, but it's also healthy for all of those who are watching what is taking place. I've had people tell me in the past, you know, I used to think the church was a joke until I saw somebody get church disciplined, and I realized that the church wasn't a joke. I used to think that the church really didn't matter. Everybody just kind of came together until I saw somebody that was walking in such a way that was defaming the name of Christ and the church actually took it seriously. You see, folks, we live in a world today where people don't take their sins seriously. They don't take the fact that that they have the name of Jesus Christ on their life. And church discipline says, this is serious. My body is serious. My representatives, it's a serious thing. And therefore, when somebody has walked away from Christ um, practically, even though they claim Christ uh, um, verbally, they need to be treated and held accountable for their lifestyle. We must remember, again, this is not dealing with somebody who is repentant. This is not dealing with somebody who is on a journey. This is dealing with somebody who is defiantly sinful, who knows that they're walking in sin and says, I refuse to walk away from it. This is dealing with a Hebrews chapter number 10 person whom the Bible says, If you sin willfully after you've come to the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for your sins. This is somebody who shakes their fist in God's face 
and refuses to listen to his voice or his instruction. The people who are accountable are those who call themselves brothers, those who represent the body of Christ, those who are a detriment to the testimony of Christ and his church, and those whose sin endangers the body of Christ. Those whose sin endangers the body of Christ. We want to remember that as well. Somebody who is living in unrepentant sin becomes a danger to the other brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the church body. When things are not dealt with seriously, it can be harmful to the others who are there to seeing sin as being serious. Those are the people who are accountable. Number three, the provocation of church discipline. Just a few things here, and I'm not gonna take long on this. There's a lot here, but number one, it was a public sin. The Bible calls it in the, in the text in 1 Corinthians 5, it calls it a gross sin. In other words, it's something that everybody, everybody knew about. It was, he said it was reported amongst the people. Everybody knew what was taking place. So he was, he was publicly bringing a disgrace to the name of God or to the name of Christ. He was publicly doing it. So it's a, it's a known sin, a public sin. It's an eternal, external activity that brings a reproach to Christ. And you'll, you'll see that in the list of things that he covers, that these are external things. These are things that um, are, are outward and they are defaming the church or defaming. If people were to say, you know, that guy goes to that church, so that church must not be very serious about Christ, that's the type of stuff that we're dealing with here. Okay, does, does that I mean the... the uh, the, the context here is, I didn't say it. <laughs> I almost said it, but I didn't say it. The context here is that this person is living in sexual immorality and people know about it and there is no action by the church to deal with it. Matter of fact, again, the issue is, is that they embraced it. Matter of fact, as you study the text in 1 Corinthians 5, what you'll find is this. The, the reprimand is more to the church than it is to the individual who committed the sin. That's what really 1 Corinthians 5 is dealing with. It's not dealing with the man as much as it's dealing with the church and their attitude towards that type of sin, that type of a defamation of God's character. We even have a law against the defamation of character against each other, right? How much more shall we have a law against defamation of God's character? That's what this is dealing with. The church says that we're the body of Christ. We should live in such a way that is a reflection of the body of Christ. He, does, he uses a list here. And I'm just going to give you these. Uh, fornication, the Greek word here is pornea. It's the idea of, of uh, pornography, public immorality, uh, any type of a public display of uh, sexual immorality that's not appropriate. And we see that word used all throughout the New Testament. And it always in, in, uh, is related to a sexual immorality that is, is, um, that is sinful, he uses the word covetous. And this is a term, again, that we don't deal with a lot in the church, but covetousness is a sin. The 10th commandment is not to desire your neighbor's stuff. I mean, this is the same, this is the same list. He's like, if somebody is covetous, look, covetousness can destroy a church. In the same way that sexual immorality can destroy a church, covetousness can destroy a church. So he, he puts it in the list. Idolatry, one who worships other gods, railers, those who are gossips or backbiters, those who are constantly trying to undermine or destroy or, or belittle authority. That's what the idea of railing is. This is something that will also destroy a church very, very quickly. I've been in a number of churches that have fallen apart, and at the end of the day, what was determined to be the cause was much talking and much undermining of those who were in authority. Listen, there's no, there's no claim at Grace Bible Church here to have perfect people in authority. There is no claim. Matter of fact, God doesn't call perfect people into authority. God calls broken people into authority, and he calls broken people to follow broken people in authority. Amen? And when that breaks down, things break down. 
That authority is there for a reason. It's not because, I've shared with our elders over and over again, our position is not because we're better than anybody else in this congregation, that we're better at doing what we do, that somebody sitting in the congregation could not do a better job than we do. But that doesn't matter. It's like a dad who says, I'm not going to be a good dad because, because there's better dads out there. Or kids who say, I'm not going to follow my parents because there's better dads out there. Is that the way it should be? No, we're fallen. We're broken individuals. We're failures. We're striving to do what's right the best that we know how. Just like we do, like you do as dads and husbands and, and, and bosses and whatever role you do. You're not perfect at it. You do your best. Reviling can be destructive in a church. We're not dealing with perfect men. We're not dealing with perfect people. We shouldn't rail on each other either. The next one he uses is the word drunkard. Drunkard. The idea here is those who are controlled by substances. It's not just alcohol, but it's substances in general. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient for me. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. In other words, Paul says, I'm not going to involve myself in anything that would be able to control me. Why? Because it's destructive. It will destroy your family. It will destroy your home. It will destroy your church. It's destructive. The Lord did not get in the Garden of Eden and say to things, I'm going to give you authority over everything else. He came into the Garden of Eden and he said to Adam, I'm giving you authority over everything. God wants us to be authoritative over things, not things to be authoritative over us. When things become authoritative over us, that's when destruction happens. The devil gets a rule in our life and begins to unfold everything that is good and unpack everything that is good, like marriages, homes, churches. Everything that God has created is unpacked when things become God, when things become in control. Extortion, he says. Extortion is to exact something by force. It's to get something by brutality. And I can talk about this one for a while too, and I won't, but you get the idea. You've been around people that are cruel and brutal. They get their way, but they get their way, and nobody likes it. Right? False teachers, Romans 16, 17, mark those who cause division amongst you and, and uh, separate yourself from them. False teachers are to be disciplined by the church. And then in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 20, the Bible says that an erring elder is to be disciplined by the church. And I encourage you to read and study that because there's a lot of details that go along into that and it's something that is very, very careful and cautious, but elders are not above discipline. No one is. These are the things that provoke. And in each case, what do you have? You have the church at its core. You have the essence of the church, which is to represent and glorify God at risk. And therefore, God is dealing with it and calls us to deal with it. The process, number four, the process of church discipline, number one, is mourn for the offender. Number one is mourn for the offender. Let me say this to you. If your heart at the moment of discipline is not a heart of mourning, then you probably should wait to discipline. At the point of discipline, there should be a broken heart towards the individual who is being disciplined. If our heart is in any other such way other than to be broken for this individual, we will not come, a, 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 we will not come off as being concerned or as being discipling them. We will come across as being selfish, as being angry, as it being personal, and it's never personal. This is about the church, God's people. The first step in this process is we have to be mournful towards the individual who has, who has walked away from doing the things that God wants them to do. Number two, we must respond in sincerity and in truth, not in malice and wickedness. And I won't spend a lot of time here, but you know what malice is. Malice is when we're going to get back at somebody. 
We must respond in sincerity, sincere heart, a true heart, truth about the situation and not be malicious or wicked in the situation. Number three, they're to be put out of the church. It means that they're to be told not to come back to the church for a season. Um, This deals in many cases, in many churches, as here with members, um, they're to be put out of the church and then, and then they are to have fellowship broken with them for a season until there's repentance. And all of this is done for the sake of, of restoring them. Through this discipline, we encourage others not to sin. 1 Timothy 5.20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So they're to be rebuked and they're to be separated. We're to be separated from them to encourage other people. It is a, a great encouragement to other people not to walk in that sin when they see that there is discipline that they must face. And then they, we continue the work of the Lord. The Bible says in this text that we're, we're to take out the old leaven and replace it with new leaven, right? And then we're to take the feast. And the idea of the text in 1 Corinthians 5 is this, that we're not to stop what we're doing. Sometimes these types of things, they stop the church. That's not the, that's not the issue here. The issue is take care of the issue and move on. Do God's work. Do God's work continuing to do God's work. I believe in many ways that, that we all have to do that at some point in time in our lives and in our ministry. Number five, the purpose of church discipline. The scripture, the text says, number one, is to deliver the offender. The Bible says it's to deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Okay, this means that now Satan has authority to bring judgment to him. Let me say it this way. When a person is a, is a part of a body of believers, they have an umbrella of protection around them that prevents them from, having, from Satan having his hand in their world. There's a protection that they experience by being in the church. When we put them out of the church, we have now removed that protection from them, and they are now... Satan now has freedom to bring into their lives whatever God allows him to bring, similar to the life of Job, different story completely. So they're to be put out of the church so that Satan can bring tribulation into their lives, can destroy them. Did you guys know that that's Satan's goal is to destroy us? He can do that when they're put out of the church. We experience the protection of the Lord by being in the church, by being a part of the body of believers. So we deliver that offender out of the church so that he can can be dealt with by Satan. Ultimately, we'll look at the purpose here of bringing him back. But, But initially, he is brought out, separated from the church so that Satan can deal with him. Okay? It sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? But Satan, is, Satan is, a, is a tool of the Lord as well. He doesn't accomplish his own purposes. He accomplishes God's purposes. And some of those purposes are to bring destruction of the flesh. Our flesh is, an, is our, in many ways ourself is our enemy. And Satan has a good way of ridding us of ourselves. Number two. The purpose of church discipline is to, is to protect the flock, to protect the church from sin. It is to protect this body of believers that is very precious to God, that is purchased with his own blood. The purpose is to protect you from harm, physical harm. Listen, there are people that you would not have into your household, right? Right? Can anybody think of someone that they would not have into their own household? We can all think of people that, because we love our families. And we're not going to bring certain people into our household who would hurt our families. True or false? Is the church as important? Absolutely. 
And we love repentant people that come into the church of God and they find and see their sins and they are repentant and they get discipled and people that we we all struggle with sin. This is not about being perfect, but it's about being discipled and being uh, honest and being transparent and working together. But if somebody comes in who has an unrepentant heart and says, yes, this is who I am and this is who I'm going to be and I'm not going to stop and they become a, a risk to our church body then we have to deal with them appropriately for the sake of the glory of God and the, and, the, and the sanctity of his body. It's an act of love, not an act of hate. When you don't let somebody into your house because they might hurt your family, it's not because you hate them. You might not even know them, but you love your family. That's what church discipline does. It guards those who are God's sheep. You guys. It protects us. It protects the the flock from sin. You'll notice in the text here it says, a little leaven will leaven the whole... Here's what he means. A little sin allowed that is unrepented of will begin to affect the whole lump. Number next purpose of church discipline: deliver the defender, protect the flock from sin, protect the flock from division. It's also there to protect us from being divided. It's to unite us in the, the vision and the direction of the church. It is to purify the church body for blessing, and it is to purify the church body so that we can one day be presented to Christ holy, without blemish and uh, without wrinkle or spot. The last reason is for the restoration of the offender, that we might restore the offender back into the church. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter number 2, many people believe that you're dealing with the exact same story as 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, and you're dealing with the restoration of that person. The goal is not to destroy them, but the goal is to restore them back into the body of Christ. To, dis- to restore them into his family. And then they can be, he can be discipled and uh, worked with. Galatians 6.1, brethren, if anyone is caught in the transgressions, you who are spiritual should restore such as one in the spirit of meekness or gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. We, our goal should be to restore that individual We never quit on them. A sheep that goes astray, we pursue them, we disciple them, we work with them, we don't quit on them, just as Jesus Christ never quit on us. Our goal is to restore them. But in the process of restoring them, there are certain things that have to take place. It's like what we want to do is we want to go through the steps of church discipline and we want to say, you know, I really wanted to restore this person, so I'm going to cut out all of these steps. Okay? And what we've just done is we've removed God out of the scenario, and now we're responsible for restoring them. And when we restore people that's, uh, in such a way that's outside of God's process, we ultimately get what we get. When God restores people, we get what we want. We get what God wants. Let me give you a couple thoughts in closing. If you're here with us this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're not a part of the family of God. You're not a believer. And you know that. You're not, you're, not, you're not fooled. You know that. You've accepted the fact that you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. It's just, this, it's just a truth, a reality of who you are at this very moment. Listen to me. What this can tell you is that our God is holy. And our God is just. And our God is pure. When we look at his church, that's what we should see. Our God is holy. Our God is just and our God is pure. And for those of us, for those of you who may not know Jesus Christ, you must tremble at the very idea of standing in the presence of the God of the universe. And within that, you must understand that in and through Jesus Christ, we can experience grace and mercy and forgiveness. He didn't just cast this man aside and say, we don't care about you anymore. He pushed him aside so that he could deal with him and then restore him back into the family of God. This is the gospel. 
If you don't know Jesus Christ, there is hope for you. If you refuse to repent of your sins and embrace what Jesus Christ has done for you, you will be pushed aside. And it doesn't matter if it's by the church. What really matters is you will be pushed aside by God. God is your enemy at this moment. And it is in and through Jesus Christ that you can experience restoration. It is in and through Jesus Christ that you can experience forgiveness. Deliverance, transformation. Jesus Christ can do all of these things. These are the things that he promises us and he brings us into his fold. He he brings us into his church so that we can then be helped as we go on this journey of faith to be conformed into the image of Christ from which we are so far. If you're a believer this morning, if you know Jesus Christ as your savior, let the church be a reminder of the fact that you represent him. You are an earthly representative of the body of Christ. This is not to be taken lightly. This is not to be seen as something insignificant. We are the body of Jesus. We should reflect him. We should represent him well. We should live in a community that represents him well. And as we stray, if we stray, Let us remember that there is justice for those who are unbelievers. There is grace and discipleship and care for those who are believers. Church discipline should not be an uncommon thing in the church. It should be something that happens. It is a grace. It is a grace to the church to have church discipline. We hate to do it, And by God's grace, we won't have to do it, but we will. And as we walk through it and journey through it together as a church, may we find at the core the significance of our Lord and the value of the soul that has walked away and may be lost, but definitely needs to be restored. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for bringing us into your kingdom. Thank you for the church that helps us to be sanctified, to be transformed into the image of your son. Help us, Lord God, to see the church as being set apart to represent and to reflect on you. Help us to take that seriously, Lord, to to honor you by how we function as a body of believers. Help us to be loving and, and, and gracious and merciful. But Lord, also help us to see sin for what it is, to realize that there is danger if there is unrepentant sin that could be hurtful to your, to your um, Lord, to your testimony, but also be hurtful to your body, the church. And I pray that you'll help us to take this seriously, Lord, to embrace, to love your church, to love your people in such a way that we would protect your church. Please be with us as we go from here. The Lord God be glorified in us in Christ's name. Amen.